0: This is June 2nd, 2019, and um, for this Taisho we'll be talking about the place of faith in uh, Zen practice. I'll be reading from an article from an, uh, an old uh, Tricycle magazine. This is uh, Summer 2006, um, and the title of the article is Faith in Awakening. And it, underneath it says, "Are faith and empiricism compatible?" And it's by a Theravadan monk uh, by the name of uh, Tanasaro Biku. Biku means monk, the traditional celibate monk uh, that uh, is no longer really uh, required and hasn't been for I don't know a couple hundred years in Japan. Uh, I do like every once in a while to read something from one of the other streams of Buddhist practice other than Zen. There are three three primary streams of, of Buddhism practiced in the West and in the Americas and Europe. Uh, they are, besides Zen, the other two are uh, Tibetan Buddhism, sometimes known as Vajrayana Buddhism, and the third is uh, Theravada Buddhism, sometimes um, called Vipassana, but more, I think more correctly, Theravada. Um, and um, I always find myself um, buoyed by uh, reading uh, teachings in Theravada Buddhism, uh, also Tibetan Buddhism, but... Uh, maybe more to Theravada Buddhism because there's a there's a simplicity to that that I don't see so much in in, uh, Tibetan Buddhism Uh, a um, simplicity and a a reliance on simple basic teachings, the early teachings of the Buddha uh, that just just reflects uh, my experience in Zen practice and that of anyone if you practice long enough. So this is going to be a a Theravadan text that's got a lot of Zen in it. Uh, And uh, it just says here as a kind of a little statement under the title, uh, for Thanissaro Bhikkhu, they are inseparable components of an authentic Buddhist practice, they meaning faith and empiricism. And uh, this Tanasaro Bhikkhu is abbot of the Metta Forest Monastery in San Diego County, California. It begins, The Buddha never placed unconditional demands on anyone's faith. For people from a culture where the dominant religions do make such demands, that's ours, this is one of Buddhism's most attractive features. It's especially appealing to those who, in reaction to the demands of organized religion, embrace the view of scientific empiricism that nothing deserves our trust unless it can be measured against physical data. In this light, the Buddha's famous instructions to the Kalamaras, uh, some tribe in his time, 2,500 years ago. Uh, The Buddhist famous instructions to the Kalamaras are often read as an invitation to believe or not whatever we like. And then he quotes uh, those instructions. Uh, The version here presented in this article is a little different and a little longer than the one I've always heard. Um, So I'm going to read the one uh, that is more commonly in the Mahayana texts. Uh, as compared to the Theravada texts, So this is what the Buddha said, Don't believe solely because the written testimony of some ancient wise man is shown you. And don't believe anything on the mere authority of your teachers or priests. What you should accept as true and as the guide to your life is whatever agrees with your own reason and your own experience after thorough investigation, and whatever is helpful both to you, to your own well-being, and that of other living beings. The the problem, the one word that I choke on a little bit here is reason. Whatever agrees with your own reason. Uh, But it's a capital R. It doesn't mean just this logical mind that is just a little fragment of our true mind. It's a capital R, so I would just take it out and say whatever agrees with your own experience after thorough investigation, after long uh, meditation, and whatever is helpful both to your own well-being and that of other living beings. And then he resumes here. Pointing to this passage, many modern writers have gone so far as to say that faith has no place in the Buddhist tradition. That the proper Buddhist attitude is one of skepticism. Uh, that would be. This was l- written long before uh, Stephen Batchelor's uh, um, books and art- articles and in bu- in his book on uh, on uh, skepticism. Um, but I'm sure he would see him as one of those. And he says, but even though the Buddha recommends tolerance and a healthy healthy skepticism toward matters of faith, he also notes a conditional imperative. If you sincerely want to put an end to suffering, that's the condition, you should take certain things on faith as working hypotheses and then test them by following his path of of practice. The advice to the Kalamas, in fact, Contains the crucial caveat that you must take into account what wise people value. I think this is a very strong uh, counter argument to uh, Stephen Batchelor and others who are um, uh, fleeing the faith element of practice and um, going to just the secular skepticism about it. And then the rest of the article, he basically elaborates on this. This caveat gives balance to the Buddha's advice. Just as you shouldn't give unreserved trust to outside authority, you can't give unreserved trust to your own logic and feelings if they go against experience and the genuine wisdom of others. Uh, I think this is a, a, a misunderstanding that is... Uh, acquiring more and more um, acceptance in our in our modern culture is that if it doesn't match what I believe, then it's not to be trusted. the The implication is that we have arrived at some place where our innate wisdom, and we all have this innate wisdom. Has uh, been actualized that we're operating out of this wisdom, which is not the case at all. Uh, we are all all fall short of of uh, realizing, making real our inherent wisdom. We our our vision is clouded, our judgment is clouded. Um, we can't rely completely on our own, uh, what strikes us as true and, and not true. Anyone who's been practicing long enough knows that what we used to be so sure of uh, evaporates and we come to see that it was just uh, notions in our mind, conditioning that we've picked up over the course of our life. So our own, um, our own opinions or belief systems are not to be relied on but neither are we to discard our intuitive sense of of what uh, seems true or square it's a it's a fine fine line there and he goes on to say as other early discourses make clear wise people can be recognized by their words and behavior as measured against standards set by the buddhas and his awakened Buddha and his awakened disciples. The proper attitude toward those who meet these standards is faith. Repeatedly the Buddha stated that faith in a teacher is what leads you to learn from that teacher. Faith in the Buddha's own awakening is a requisite strength for anyone else who wants to attain awakening. Now here, just uh, some words of um, my own uh, sense. Uh, Faith in the Buddha's own awakening, Roshi Kaplow would often, often say, there's only one thing you have to believe in Zen, and that is that when the Buddha declared at his great awakening that all beings are equally endowed with this enlightened nature, he was neither mistaken nor lying. In other words, that's the article of faith, that all of us are endowed with this Buddha nature, this luminous, uh, unlimited sense of of, of, of of wisdom and compassion and virtue. But actually, I would just have to uh, qualify that by saying, not, not even that! really when you get right down to it even that you don't have to believe in it, it i think it's helpful to believe in it as this uh biku also would say it's helpful to believe that someone long before us attained this complete enlightenment it's not absolutely essential uh because it's the the method it's the it's what we're doing it's the sitting the zazen that's what we have to believe in enough to do it, even then, s- strictly speaking, we don't need to believe in it. That's the wrong emphasis. We just have to do it <clears throat> That's what it all comes down to is the doing the the practice itself, the belief in the Buddha and his awakening. yeah, it can't hurt, but actually it could if we're if we're sitting and thinking about the Buddha's awakening then we will be um, blocked from realizing what he realized. Because the the mind cannot be scored by any belief system in order for it to open up into awakening. I often uh, have mentioned... Uh, the very rare cases of spontaneous enlightenment uh, that as, a, as evidence that you don't have to believe in even the Buddhism, Buddhism or the Buddha. Uh, I have here this uh, small book uh, long since out of print uh, called An Experience of Enlightenment by Flora Courtois. I once uh, devoted two days of Sesshin Teishos to this, reading through this book. Right now, I just want to read uh, the tipping point there uh, for her. Uh, Now, this is someone who apparently had, this is in the 1940s, a college student. Flora Courtois was a college student in Ann Arbor, University of Michigan, in the 1940s, who was gripped by... fundamental question. What is real? What is real? Apparently, uh, from everything I can determine from this little book, she had not heard of Buddhism, had not even heard of enlightenment. She was complete innocent, with no belief system in in that. And yet what happened to her is something that can happen to any of us. She describes the first half of the book as her struggling and struggling for months where she, she, with this question, where she couldn't put it, it wouldn't put her down. It had had her by the throat, uh, where she just uh, was consumed by this question, what is real, and, and every, every moment of her waking hours. And it got to the point where Um, She says, I finally decided that reality must be unlike any preconceived idea I might have of it and, and this is the crucial part, and reached a point of just waiting and letting be. In other words, no thought. Not even the thought of enlightenment. She didn't know what enlightenment was. She never heard of it. As we find out when we read on here. Just Nothing in the mind. Just sitting. No beliefs, no faith, just sitting. She says, for long periods I simply sat, saying inwardly, no, not this, as if waiting for what I knew not. So you see here, um, as the the backside of of what must have been tremendous faith in her own um, questioning was this questioning itself, which we call in Zen doubt, the doubt mass. She must have had, even without knowing it, without thinking about it, she must have had tremendous faith in the mind's capacity to realize itself. Otherwise she wouldn't have been driven to do this for months. And out of that faith comes the questioning. And she reports, Sometime in April, Easter vacation arrived and I went home to Detroit to spend a week with my parents. There, about three days later, alone in my room, sitting quietly on the edge of my bed, And gazing at a small desk, not thinking of anything at all, in a moment too short to measure, the universe changed on its axis and my search was over. And then just briefly how she describes it. The small pale green desk at which I'd been so thoughtlessly gazing had totally and radically changed. It appeared now with a clarity, a depth of three-dimensionality, a freshness I had never imagined possible. At the same time, in a way that is utterly indescribable, all my questions and doubts were gone as effortlessly as chaff in the wind. I knew everything and all at once, yet not in the sense that I had ever known anything before. All things were the same in my little bedroom, yet totally changed. Still sitting in wonder on the edge of my narrow bed, one of the first things I realized was that the focus of my sight seemed to have changed. It had sharpened to an infinitely small point which moved ceaselessly in paths totally free of the old accustomed ones, as if flowing from a new source. What on earth had happened? So released from all tension, so ecstatically light did I feel, I seemed to float down the hall to the bathroom to look at my face in the mottled mirror over the sink. The pupils of my eyes were dark, dilated and brimming with mirth. With a wondrous relief, I began to laugh as I'd never laughed before from the soles of my feet upward. And then uh, described... A uh, period of many months where she was trying to figure out what had happened to her <laughs> without ever heard, having heard of enlightenment. She went to the uh, University Health Service, uh, which I uh, used to walk by uh, many times there, and uh, they didn't know what had happened to her. They just said, It seems to be some kind of conversion experience you've had. Um, and then, and that was all she had to go on. And then, uh, because she had no sitting practice, it had just come to her spontaneously. There was no way for her to preserve that open vision, that that, that um that new vista into the world. And because it, it was a quite it sounds like quite a deep experience, it lasted for a while, but then gradually, as the months and years passed, it faded away, she says, and uh the old habit forces of uh, what we would say—greed, anger, and delusion in many forms—they uh, crept back in. And uh, finally, after 25 years, uh, she, her, her uh, path crossed with Yasutani Roshi out in California, and uh, she went to one of his talks. And she described this experience to him in detail, and. He no doubt asked her some questions about it and then he told her that uh, it seemed from everything he could tell that it was a genuine uh, enlightenment experience. And that's when she picked up the sitting and from then on she she had now found a method, she'd found sitting practice and continued to practice uh, for the rest of her life. All of this is to to rewind now, is uh, to say that yes, have faith in the Buddha's awakening, uh, but don't think that you have to cling to that. Uh, What you need to focus on is the practice you're working on. That's what empties the mind, and it's an empty mind that is the precondition for awakening. So he continues, so there's a tension in the Buddha's recommendations about faith and empiricism. Few Asian Buddhists I know find the tension uncomfortable, but Western Buddhists, raised in a culture where religion and faith have long been at war with science and empiricism, find it very disconcerting. In my discussions with them, they often try to resolve it in the same ways in which, historically, the tension between Christian faith and scientific empiricism has been resolved in our own culture. Three general positions stand out because they are both common and clearly Western. Consciously or not, they attempt to understand the Buddhist position on faith and empiricism in a way that can be easily mapped onto the modern Western battle lines between religion and science. And these are the three the three interpretations. The first, he says has its roots in the side of Western culture that totally rejects the legitimacy of faith. In this view, the Buddha embodies the Victorian ideal of the heroic agnostic, one who eschewed the childish consolations of faith in favor of a purely scientific method for strengthening one's own mind. Because his method focused entirely on the present moment, questions of past and future were totally irrelevant to his message. Thus any references to faith in such issues as past karma, future rebirth, or an unconditioned happiness separate from the senses are later interpolations in the texts, which Buddhist agnostics, following the Buddha's example, should do their best to reject. Okay, so it's it's, a, it's uh, just to try to sum it up a little bit. So in this first interpretation, the way to, to reconcile uh, faith and empiricism is to uh, reject faith and just say, okay, it's all up to oneself. And as long as you're keeping your mind in the present, then you have no use for any any Buddhist doctrine or any thoughts of the Buddha. The second interpretation has roots in the side of Western culture that rejected either the specifics of Christian faith or the authority of any organized religion, but has appreciated faith as an essential requirement for mental health. This view presents the Buddha as a hero from the Romantic era, appreciating the subjective value of faith and establishing a sense of wholeness within and interconnectedness without, regardless of what the object of that faith might be, in other words, it doesn't matter where faith is directed, as long as it's deeply felt and personally nourishing. I think of uh these remarkable the mar- remarkable research with the with the placebos, and uh, if you have enough faith, even just there in medicine. Uh, then even a placebo can seems to have change, work for you. Or faith in a uh, coach, uh, faith in a teacher, uh, faith in, in, in anyone. He goes on, faith in the Buddha's awakening, in this view, means simply believing that he found what worked for himself, which carries no implications for what will work for you. If you find the teaching on karma and rebirth comforting, fine, believe it. If not, don't. What's important is that you relate to your faith in a way that it's emotionally healing, nourishing, and empowering. This would also be faith in one's therapist. If you're doing psychotherapy, there's no question but that faith is, works. Or faith in your, your chiropractor, faith in your physical therapist. It's a huge factor in change. And then the third interpretation, he he says none of these really square with what faith means uh, in a truly Buddhist sense. Third interpretation encompasses the first two, but instead of presenting the Buddha as a hero, depicts him as trapped in his historical situation. And he explains... Much like us, he was faced faced with finding a meaningful life in light of the world view of his day. His views on karma and rebirth were simply assumptions picked up from the primitive science of ancient India. This is another claim that uh, uh, Stephen Batchelor makes in his rejection of of, uh, faith. While his paths of practice was... His path of practice was an attempt to negotiate a satisfying life within those assumptions. If he were alive today, according to this view, he would try to reconcile his values with the discoveries of modern science in the same way that some Westerners have done with their faith in monotheism, belief in a god. The underlying assumption of this position is that science is concerned with facts, religion with values. Science provides the hard data for which religion should provide meaning. Thus, each Buddhist would be performing the work of a Buddha by accepting the hard facts that have been scientifically proven for our generation and then searching the Buddhist tradition, as well as other traditions where appropriate, for myths and values to give meaning to those facts, and in the process, forging a new Buddhism for our times. He continues, Each of these three interpretations may make eminent sense from a Western point of view, but none of them do justice to what we know of the Buddha or of his teaching on the role of faith and empiricism on the path. All three are correct in emphasizing the Buddha's unwillingness to force his teachings on other people, but by forcing our own assumptions onto his teachings and actions, they misread what that unwillingness means. He wasn't an agnostic. He had strong reasons for declaring some ideas as worthy of faith and others as not. And his teachings on karma, rebirth, and nirvana broke radically with the dominant worldview of his time. He was neither a Victorian nor a romantic hero, nor was he a victim of circumstances. Those are the three interpretations. uh, He was a hero who, among other things, mastered the issue of faith and empiricism in a radical way. But to appreciate that way, we first have to step back from the Western cultural battlefield and look at faith and empiricism in a more basic context, simply as processes within the individual mind. And then he goes into um, uh, discussion of two kinds of truths. Um, He says faith plays a deeper role in many of our decisions, As William James James once observed, there are two kinds of truths in life, those whose validity has nothing to do with our actions and those whose reality depends on what we do. So the truths of the first sort, truths of the observer, include facts about the behavior of the physical world, how atoms form molecules, how stars explode. The truths of the second sort, truths of the will, include skills, relationships, business ventures, anything that requires your effort to make it real. With truths of the observer, it's best to stay skeptical until reasonable evidence is in. With truths of the will, though, the truth won't happen without your faith in it, often in the face of unpromising odds. For example, if you don't believe that becoming a pianist is worthwhile or that you have the makings of a good pianist, it won't happen. Truths of the will are the ones most relevant to our pursuit of this of true happiness. Many of the most inspiring stories in life are of people who create truths of this sort when a mountain of empirical evidence, such as racism, poverty, physical disability is against them in cases like this the truth requires that faith actively discount the immediate facts okay so let's translate this into practice so in we're sitting and we're seeing how uh, futile our efforts may seem at times how obstructive our mind is how we falter again and again um, that's the, the the apparent facts, that we're losers, that we, we just can't do this practice. We're bad at it. Every single one of us has gone through those kind of things. In order for the practice to work, we have to set those aside. We have to not attend to that data that we're pretty lame at this practice, and have faith that just in doing it, persisting in the face of those difficulties, that we'll find our way through them. And then he gets into quite a discussion about karma, law of causation, and uh, the um, sort of the dual nature of it, that, uh, that there is this fact of cause and effect, cause and effect, the chain of cause and effect, but that we are not bound by it, that our will, our intention, what we do, Ha, can change our karma. This is a crucial point about understanding. It's not fate. We are not bound by our karma. This is all investigated in in depth in uh, the second koan in the Mumonkan, uh, the the fox koan about the fox. I'm not going to take the time to get into uh, this because karma always takes time. To look at it, the different sides of it and how complex it is. Uh, it take though the look at the, the 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 four noble truths. Uh, he says because the third noble truth that is the cessation of suffering, or in other words, the third noble truth is there's a way out of suffering. Because it is a truth of the will, we have to take it on faith that it's worthwhile. It's a worthwhile and attainable <clears> goal. And because the fourth noble truth. That is, how to get out of suffering, the path to the cessation of suffering, is a path of action and skill. We have to take it on faith that our actions are real, that we have free will, and yet that there is a causal pattern to the workings of the mind from which from which we can learn in mastering that skill. As the Buddha said, the path will lead to a direct experience of these truths but only if you bring faith to the practice will you know this for yourself. In other words, faith in the Buddhist context means faith in the ability of your actions to lead to a direct experience of the end of suffering. And where does that faith come from? From experience, our own experience with sitting and moving practice. That's how faith grows, from experience. We don't have to rely on uh, teachings exclusively. We don't have to rely on the story of the Buddha. We have to do the practice, and if we do it persistently enough, long enough, then we will be borne along by that experience. We will see that there is, it works, Never as fast as we like it to, but it works. We change. And then he gets into how to use faith and empiricism in a successful search. He gets into the matter of searching. Searching for our true nature. Searching for a way out of suffering. And he draws from four of the Buddha's similes illustrating how a search should be conducted. The first simile illustrates search in its most raw and unfocused form. And this is the simile. Two strong men have grabbed another man by the arms and are dragging him to a pit of burning embers. The Buddha notes, wouldn't the man twist his body this way and that? That's the end. And then he says, The twisting of his body stands for the way we react to suffering. We don't bother to ask if our suffering is predetermined or our actions have any hope of success. We simply put up a struggle and do what we can to escape. It's our natural reaction. The Buddha taught that this reaction is twofold. We're bewildered. Why is this happening to me? How can this be happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? And we search for a way to put an end to the suffering. When he stated that he he taught nothing but suffering and the end of suffering, he was responding to these two reactions, providing an explanation of suffering and its end so as to do away with our bewilderment, while at the same time showing the way to the end of suffering so as to satisfy our search. And this is an interesting sentence. He had no use for the idea that our suffering comes from our struggle to resist suffering. Something intellectual about that. Our suffering comes from our struggle to resist suffering. Okay, maybe so. But now what? This is what I love about Buddhism, especially Zen, the practicality of it. Okay, we can we can you do that mental exercise. Okay, our very suffering is itself comes from our struggle to, to, to resist it. But he, had, he says he had no use for that idea. He had no use for the, the idea that the search for an end to suffering is precisely what keeps us from seeing the peace already there. He says that it's uh, simply relaxing into a total acceptance of the moment, in terms of this simile, means relaxing into the prospect of being burned alive. So he's rejecting this intellectual, conceptual uh, view that that all we have to do is relax into our suffering. Okay, good. How are you going to do that? How can any of us do that? We need a method. We need a way. The second simile illustrates the importance of proper method on the search. And here's the simile, very short. This is from the Buddha. A person searching for milk tries to get milk out of a cow by twisting its horn. (laughs) Who would do that? Uh, Another person searching for milk tries to get milk out of the cow by pulling at its udder. And then he explains. This simile is a response to the assertion that no human action can bring release from suffering. We can attain release, the Buddha said, as long as we follow the right method like the person pulling at the udder of the cow. The right method starts with right understanding, and this is where faith in the Buddha's awakening comes in. As the Buddha once stated, he didn't tell us everything he awakened to. This is another beautiful simile. What he told us was like a handful of leaves. What he had learned was like all the leaves in the forest. Still, the leaves in the handful contained all the lessons that would help others to awaken. Right understanding begins with learning what those specific lessons are. The most important lesson, the author continues, and the most important item of faith is simply the fact of the awakening itself. The Buddha achieved it through his own efforts. And he did so, not because he was more than human, but because he developed mental qualities we all have the potential to develop. To have faith in his awakening thus means having faith in your own potential for awakening. And that's not limited to the Buddha. There have been hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands Of women and men since the Buddha have also come to awakening. If it were just the Buddha, then we could just discard it as some freak thing. But so many others, people sitting here in this room today, However, the specifics of what he learned in his awakening are important as well. It's not simply the case that he found what worked for him, while what works for you may be something entirely different. No matter how much you twist a cow's horn, it'll never produce milk. The Buddha's insights penetrated into how things work, what it means for them to work. These insights apply to everyone throughout time. And then I'm going to skip more on causality, um, because we're running out of time, but, and skip to the third simile, which stresses the importance of not settling for anything less than a genuine thing. And then here, here's the simile. One searching for heartwood goes into a forest and comes to a tree containing heartwood, but instead of taking the heartwood, he takes home some sapwood branches, or bark. I'm not sure what heartwood is, but I think anyone can understand the gist of this, the the real heart of the matter. And then the author comments, Faith in the possibility of enlightenment, the heartwood of the path, is what keeps you from getting waylaid by the pleasures of the sapwood and bark. The gratification that comes from being generous and... Here he's describing the the sapwood and the bark as the, the pleasure that comes from being generous and virtuous, the sense of peace, interconnectedness, and oneness that comes with strong concentration. And he says, just to, to paraphrase this, is to not settle for that. As wonderful it is, as tempting as it is to settle into that, to not do so if what we want is to go all the way. We could say that the the bark, the the sapwood, as compared to the heartwood, is just that. It's a sense of greater ease, peace of mind, emotional integration, uh, strong concentration. These are all fruits of Zazen. And for many people, that'll be it. That'll be all that they aspire to. And then and he says, of course, it's even better if you can take the Buddha's teachings on enlightenment as a direct challenge in this lifetime, as if he were saying, Here's your chance. Can you prove me wrong? The fourth simile describes the key role. Describes the key role of doubt on the path, and it's another, <laughs> uh, it's another example from 500 BC. An experienced elephant hunter, and, and and let's be sure that this would mean hunting for elephants to help them with their work, to uh, harness the power of the elephant and in, in um, working with timber and other things. An experienced elephant hunter searching for a big bull elephant comes across a large elephant footprint in the forest. However, he doesn't jump to the conclusion that it's the footprint of a big bull elephant. Why? Because there are dwarf female elephants with big feet. It's so news <laughs> to me. <laughs> well, let's go with it. It might be one of theirs. He follows along and sees some scratch marks and tusk marks high up, On the trees, but still doesn't jump to the conclusion that he's on the trail of a big bull elephant. Why? Because there are tall female elephants with tusks. The marks might be theirs. He follows along and finally sees a big bull elephant under a tree or in a clearing. That's when he concludes that he's found his bull elephant. In explaining this simile, the author says the Buddha identified all the preliminary steps of the practice going into the wilderness as a monastic adhering to the precepts, developing restraint, contentment, and strong concentration, seeing past lives and gaining vision of the beings of the cosmos dying and being reborn in line with their karma, all this as simply footprints and scratch marks of the Buddha's awakening. Only when you have your own first taste of awakening, having followed his path, do you really know that your faith in his awakening was well-placed. Touching the dimension where suffering ends, you realize that the Buddha's teachings about it were not only true, but also useful. He knew what he was talking about and was able to point you there as well. What's interesting about this simile is the way it combines healthy faith with honest skepticism. To act on this faith is to test it, the way you test a working hypothesis you need faith to keep following the footprints, but you also need the honesty to recognize where faith ends and realization begins. This is why, in the Buddhist context, faith and empiricism are inseparable. Unlike a monotheistic religion, where faith centers on the power of another and skepticism implies a rejection of that power, faith in the Buddha's awakening keeps pointing back to the power of your own Actions. Do you have enough power over your intentions to make them harmless? Do harmless intentions then give you the freedom to drop intention entirely? That is the intention to come to awakening, the idea of it. The only way you can answer these questions is by being scrupulously honest about your intentions to detect even the slightest traces of harm, even the slightest movements of intention itself. Got to make your inner honesty worthy of the subtle truths you're trying to prove. I would just take this honesty to mean to recognize where we still fall short, and to be able to see to notice uh, when we are um, lapsing into our old afflictive patterns of of uh, thinking and reacting to others. To get to the bull elephant, you have to do what the Buddha's disciple Sariputta did. Sariputta. He kept following the path without jumping to dishonest conclusions until he saw the elephant within. Then, when the Buddha asked him, do you take it on faith that these five strengths, faith, persistence, mindfulness, concentration, and discernment, lead to the deathless, lead to full enlightenment, Shariputra could answer honestly, no, I don't take it on faith. I know. And with that, we'll stop and recite the four Bodhisattva Vows. All
1: beings without number I vow to break Endless blind nations I vow to uproot honor my gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate The great way of Buddha I vow to attain I vow to liberate and endless blind nations. I vow to so uproot my gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the liberated way of Buddha. I vow to attain. All beings without number, I vow to liberate. Endless blind nations, I vow to uproot. Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate. The great way of Buddha, I vow. Anasong, thank you. Um, I think there's a meeting of Living Dying Group today. Yeah, maybe? There is. Okay, so that's usually at 11 o'clock in in, in Library. Okay, right.